So turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll begin this morning in chapter 12, verse 38. Jesus has healed a man who was blind and mute, unable to speak, unable to see. It was a miracle that Jesus had performed that the Pharisees had seen. They had also seen him earlier on heal a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. They had witnessed him healing the multitudes in the region of Capernaum where he was now ministering. And yet the Pharisees were still unwilling to accept him, unwilling to believe in him, unwilling to receive what he was saying and doing in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the Messiah. They should have seen with their eyes, they should have heard with their ears, but they refused to do either of those. But now in this passage we find after having done all of those things, the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus with a request. Read it with me in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Wait a minute. What was everything that I just did? The healing of all those people. The healing of the withered hand in the synagogue. What about the blind man and blind and dumb? What wasn't that a sign? Wasn't that something that you could observe and say, that's not natural? They should have looked at those things and considered that to be a sign from God that this is indeed the one. So why are they asking him for a sign here? There is some degree of difference between what we refer to as miracles and what the Jews referred to as signs. A sign is indeed a miracle, but it's something beyond a miracle. It's something that gives them an indication that by the action of this miraculous event, God himself is demonstrating a sign to the people that this is the one that they should follow. So they were looking for a sign specifically to demonstrate that he is indeed the Messiah. They could have looked at all those other miracles that he had been performing and realized that those were indeed signs because the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about the healing of the multitude of all their infirmities. That should have been sign enough, but they were looking for something more. Well, I'm reminded, and I I want to share with you, that perhaps what they were looking for is something in the order of what Moses did in the wilderness. You can turn with me to John chapter 6 and read from verse 30, a few verses beyond that, and we'll get an indication to what it is that they were actually perhaps looking for from Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 30. John writes these words, Therefore they said to him, and this is again the Pharisees and the scribes, this is in Galilee, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what they're saying is, look, Jesus, bread fell from heaven, that was a sign. That was something that we could hold on to. If you would do something like that, then we'd believe. Moses gave us bread in the heavens and brought it to us on a daily basis. Throughout the wilderness journeys, 
Every week, for six solid days in a row, manna fell from the skies. They collected the manna, and they were given food to eat every single day. And then on the seventh day, no manna fell. And the reason for that is because they were to take on the sixth day twice the amount that they were supposed to take each day, and that extra portion would last them through that seventh day of the week. But God did that miraculously every single week throughout their wanderings in the desert. And now they're saying to Jesus, give us that kind of sign. Give us a sign like Moses gave. So that's what I believe in Matthew's gospel they're expecting. They're expecting something that will prove to them beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is indeed with him in spite of the fact that they should have seen all of that already. Continuing on in John's Gospel where he says Jesus' response to their request for a sign. In verse 32 it says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Okay, if that's the case, then let us have it. And Jesus says this in verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus said there in John's Gospel, You want a sign? I am the sign. Moses didn't give you that bread. That came down from your Father in heaven. And He is my Father, and He has sent me as that very bread of life so that you could partake of me, my flesh, Jesus said. Eat of my flesh, the bread of life, and you will have eternal life. You see what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees and scribes in John's Gospel was something very, very important for them to grasp, but they did not. In fact, they rebelled at the idea of eating his flesh. He wasn't talking about eating his skin and bones flesh. He was talking about a spiritual thing, and they just did not get it. Why? Because their eyes were deliberately closed. Their ears were deliberately closed. They closed their own eyes. They stuffed their own ears. If they had opened their eyes, they would be willing then to receive and see what was going on in their midst. But they would not. Back to Matthew's Gospel, Jesus here responds in a very similar way, but he says something that is sort of rhetorical in a sense. What he gives for an answer is this in verse 39, but he answered them and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What sign do you think Jesus is telling them that they are going to receive? Well, first of all, he says, there's not going to be any sign given to this generation because an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and Jesus wasn't going to accommodate them for their sake. But he does say that there is a sign that they will observe if they would be willing to open their eyes to it. And that sign would be death, burial, and resurrection. And he gives Jonah as an example 
of that sign. He says, in the Old Testament book of Jonah, do you remember when Jonah was trying to escape the will of God? He went west when God wanted him to go east, and he went as far away from that direction that God had intended for him to go, and he got into a boat and heading toward Tarshish, all the way out into the Mediterranean Sea. Why? Because God had said, go to the Ninevites and preach this word to them. Jonah said, the Ninevites? They're our enemies. Assyria, the the people group that was... What am I trying to say? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians there. Nineveh was a great city. It's one of the oldest cities known to man. And the Assyrians were a hated people. They were cruel to the Jews in Jonah's day. And Jonah said, no way, I'm not going to preach to them because I know you're a merciful God, and if I go to preach to them, they'll repent. And I don't want them to repent. I want them dead just because they have done so many evil things against your people. Lord, why would you send me to somebody like that? He was not going to go. So he went in the opposite direction. Well, you know the story. He was in a boat. There was a great storm at the sea. And he was asleep in the hold. And the people who were aboard that ship began praying to their gods, and they realized, well, this guy's still sleeping in the hold. And so the captain of the ship comes to him and says, What are you doing? Why don't you pray to your God like everybody else? Well, the story ended by saying Jonah didn't want to change his direction. He refused. Even though he knew it was God in that storm, he refused to make a change in what he was doing. So he told them, look, this storm is because of me. All you need to do is throw me overboard. The storm will stop. You'll be safe. And I'll be happy, dead. That was what he was saying, basically. So they did. Reluctantly, they threw him overboard. And it tells us in the book of Jonah that a great fish swallowed him. Now, some think of it as a perhaps whale, and it may have been. The original Hebrew and the Greek in this portion that we were just reading doesn't convey the idea of a whale, just a great fish, a large fish, large enough to swallow a man. And there are some fish, a whale, by the way, is not a fish, there are some fish that are large enough to do so. Whatever it was, it swallowed Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that whale, Jesus says, for three days and three nights. That's in accordance with what the Old Testament scripture of the book of Jonah says as well. Three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Dark, humid, stomach acid eating away at your flesh. I don't know about you, but I don't think that would be a very fun time. It gave cause for Jonah to begin to think about what he was doing. And in fact, Jonah does write for us his thoughts as he was in that place. In a sense, he was in hell, in torment. But he prayed to his God in that place. And God caused that great fish to come near the land and spit him out, vomited him on the land. And now Jonah is ready to do God's will. But that 
activity inside the fish's belly and then being vomited out by the fish was the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus is talking about here with regard to himself. Just as it was with Jonah, so it shall be with the Son of Man. That's the sign that they would see. They wouldn't see him in the grave, obviously, but they would see him out of the grave. They would see him resurrected, and they would know that this is indeed exactly what Jesus was talking about. He is going to die, be buried, and raised again. And that, by the way, is what baptism, what we will be doing on Saturday, is all about. It's a picture of that very thing. Going into the baptism waters, the person being baptized is brought under the water to symbolize a death and a burial, and then raised up out of the water to symbolize resurrection power, new life. Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, this is the sign that you will see. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, what's he mean by that? Well, there are a lot of different thoughts that are presented by many different theologians on this matter. But Peter and Paul both write about the fact that Jesus descended into a place known as Hades to preach, proclaim to the spirits in that place that he has accomplished that which was needed to be accomplished to lead captivity captive. Hades was a place of departed spirits. Where do we go when we die? Now, in the present? If we are believers, the Bible tells us very clearly we go into the presence of the Lord. And that's why Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is great gain. We go into the presence of the Lord. Where is the Lord now? He's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So every believer who dies in this present age since he was raised from the dead goes to be with him. The spirit, the soul, are separated from the body. The body goes into the grave. The body deteriorates. The body continues in the grave until we're brought back together with all of the other saints who have gone on before us and those who will remain and are alive will be caught up together in the air and will be then given our glorified bodies and will be forever with the Lord in eternal bliss. Before the resurrection, people who were considered to be followers of God, the Jews in particular, but any of the Gentiles who were seekers as well would enter into that place of Hades, but it was a specific place located there in the underworld, if you will, and it was known as paradise, or it was known as Abraham's bosom. And Luke 16 gives us some details when Jesus speaks of those very things. And so I won't go into a whole lot of time discussing this, but note that what Jesus says in Luke 16 is a man who was a rich man who was evil went into torments and he was tormented in a flame, but he was able to see 
this other man who died about the same time that he knew, and his name was Lazarus. And he looked at Abraham and spoke to Abraham, Jesus telling us this story. Abraham, send Lazarus over here to me and let him dip his hand in water and and quench this thirst. And Abraham responded to this rich man, can't do that. There's a chasm between us. We can't go there. You can't come here. So the implication is, according to Jesus, that Hades was a place for all departed spirits at that time before the resurrection. But it says when Jesus died, he went into the belly of the earth for three days. And when he raised from the dead, he brought captivity with him. He brought Abraham with him. He brought it. Lazarus with him. He brought David with him. He brought all of the saints who had gone on before who had an expectation of the promise of God and they believed it when they died. They now were able to experience the salvation that had been promised and they now have gone into heaven with Jesus. When Jesus ascended, those saints emptied out that portion of Hades. That's the most logical understanding And there are some who don't look at it quite in the same way. But I submit to you that that's in line with what the Word of God does say. And that's where Jesus indicates that He is talking about here. He'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Going on now, Jesus is also saying something about the response that these Pharisees and scribes should have had And he points out something that is very, very important. He says in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, look, when Jonah did finally go to Nineveh, he preached to the Ninevites and they repented. Even their cows repented. They put sackcloth and ashes on themselves, sackcloth and ashes on their animals. They were serious. They said, this guy, look at what he's been saying. Forty days, and then comes judgment. Forty days, and then comes judgment. Now, this man had just been spewed out of the mouth of a large fish. He probably was like a ghost, whitened, bleached perhaps lost all of his hair, he must have looked like a dead person come to life. And I don't know what that looks like, but for me, he must have been a pretty scary thing to look at. And here he is telling the Ninevites, you guys, if you don't repent, you're going to be just like me. They didn't want that. So they all repented. Even the king of Nineveh repented. It was a great revival in a Gentile community. Jesus is saying, look, this generation, the one that he's talking to, the Pharisees and the scribes who are now rejecting the greater testimony of Jesus Christ, the Ninevites will stand in that day of judgment and condemn that generation that Jesus was then talking to. Why? Because a greater than Jonah was there in their midst. If that's not enough, Jesus goes on to give another example. He says in verse 40. Two, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends 
of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, he's talking about the Queen of Sheba. And now she travels some 1,200 miles or so, by most accounts, because she had heard of the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon had become the king of Israel after his father David had died. And the Lord blessed Solomon with great prosperity. The Lord blessed Solomon with great wisdom. And he was leading the nation of Israel in a time of peace such as they had not yet known and never would again until the Prince of Peace shall come. But Solomon was a type of Christ in that regard. And this Queen of Sheba had heard about this wisdom of Solomon, and she traveled all of that distance because she had heard something of great value and something that was such a surprise in that time. So she came to Solomon. She wanted to hear that wisdom. She wanted to see for herself. And when she did see, she spoke to Solomon and said, The half has not yet been told. Oh, wow. You are surpassing everything that I had heard about. That's pretty impressive. But Jesus is saying, She is going to condemn that generation. Because a greater than Solomon was there in their midst. Now, obviously, he's referring to himself. Greater than Solomon. He's referring to himself. Greater than Jonah. He's referring to himself. Greater than the temple. He had said that earlier on in our study in chapter 12 last week. We mentioned that. Greater than the temple. Greater than Jonah. Greater than Solomon. Standing in their midst. And they still would not. What does it take to convince people? What does it take to demonstrate the power of God, the wonderful mercies of God, the grace of God to people who will not see, to people who will not open their ears to hear, what will it take? The Spirit. And only the Spirit of God. That's the truth. That's the answer. Jesus gives now kind of a parable to demonstrate this. He says in verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man... He goes through the high places seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter the, and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall also be with this wicked generation. Jesus is giving this example and I don't think any of us can really fully comprehend what it is that Jesus is referring to when he says the evil spirit, unclean spirit, goes out of a man. How did he get in? Well, the implication is that the man let him in. And I'm convinced that that cannot happen unless there's an invitation. Whether it's through demonic activity, an individual perhaps dabbling in the spiritual realm, perhaps with Ouija boards or some other method, communicating with the spirit realm, opens himself or herself up to demonic activity. And believe me, I'm convinced spirit realm is very much active in the world today. Now, we don't see 
demonic activity like is described in the Bible, I don't think, in this present age. And I'm thinking that perhaps the only reason is the fact that the church is present in this world. The church is a restraining force. At least it should be. But there are places in the world where there is a substantial amount of demonic activity. It's obvious. And in those areas where there is no true growth of Christianity, there's a lot of demonic activity. I submit to you that there was a lot of demonic activity in that day because they did not represent their God the way they should have. And the Spirit wasn't involved in limiting the power of evil in that day. So Jesus is talking about a man that was inhabited by a demon. And somehow, the demon is either cast out or decides to leave that individual for a period of time. We're not really given any reason why. Jesus is just telling this as an example so he can demonstrate something that he wants to tell them. And he says, the demon began to think, I can go back to that place because it's empty. And I'm going to bring seven others with me. And the fate of that man then, if that is going to happen, is worse than it was in the first place. What Jesus is saying to them, the Pharisees and scribes, is the fact that, look, when God delivered them into captivity under Babylonian rule, the reason he had done that is because they had become idolatrous. They had become idol worshippers. Worshippers of the gods of the Gentiles. And God said, that is not going to continue. And so he destroyed all of Jerusalem and sent multitudes of people from Israel into Babylonian captivity. And they were there for 70 years. But when they came back from their captivity, there was no longer any evidence of idol worship. The place had been swept clean. But what they should have done was turn to God and rely on God to fill that void. But they did not. And instead, they became legalistic in their views. They became rigorous in their defense against all Gentiles. By the time Jesus is on the scene, they had become just as corrupt as the previous generations, but in a different way, and perhaps even more so because they were misrepresenting their God. And this is the story that Jesus is giving here, lines up perfectly with the way they had treated the Word of God and taught their people so wrongly. How unfortunate. Empty, swept, in good order. If they had let the Spirit of God move in their lives, that would not have happened. And I submit to you that everyone who has named the name of Christ as their Lord and their Savior asked for His forgiveness of their sins, received the promise of regeneration, being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit now comes into that person's life, dwells in you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you have received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you have confessed your sins and you have requested from Him forgiveness. He does indeed give all of that and more. 
He fills with the Holy Spirit. He now has put in you the Spirit of God who will not inhabit, co-inhabit with demons. In other words, if you have the Spirit of God in you, then there can be no possibility of demon possession. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, the Bible tells us. The enemy of your soul cannot penetrate that defense. The Spirit of God will not allow any demonic activity in the life of a believer. Now, he can be on the outside accusing. He can be on the outside oppressing. It's his desire to do you great harm. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And all you need to do in defense of all the activities that Satan may try to come against you with, stand with the armor of God because you have it available. Daily put it on. The helmet of your salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of the gospel, the shield, the faith, the sword of the Spirit. Stand, Paul tells us, and quench the fiery darts of the enemy with that shield of faith. Stand and resist the devil and he will flee. You have the tools. You have the power. But you don't have the power to go against Satan and say, Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Well, that, I suppose, might work because you're saying in the name of Jesus, aren't you? Well, but that's kind of interesting because I'm reminded in the chapter 19, I believe, of the book of Acts, there were some Jews who considered themselves to be exorcists. And they would go around exercising demons from demon-possessed individuals. And they had some apparently degree of success with that. Well, these seven sons of Sceva, we're told in the book of Acts, came to this demon-possessed individual and they said something like, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the demon responded, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And those seven sons of Sceva went out of that place badly beaten by this demonic-possessed man because they didn't have the power they thought they had. They said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, they didn't really know Jesus. They didn't really understand what Jesus had accomplished for them. They were just using the name. But you need to be careful. Michael the archangel, against Satan himself, at the body of Moses when Moses died, Satan wanted the body of Moses. Michael stood there in defense of Moses' body. And he didn't say, Satan, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael the archangel wouldn't come against Satan with his own authority. What makes you think you can? You can't. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And some say, well, he has no teeth. 
I suggest to you he's got a lot more than he needs to do harm. He's got claws. And whether or not he has teeth, I can't tell you. But I do know this. The warning is clear in the Scripture. Don't mess with Satan. Well, what am I to do? Doesn't the Word say that we can bind? Whatever you bind on earth, he will bind in heaven. He spoke that to the apostles, first of all. And I'm not sure that it can be applied directly to us. But what power do we have? We have no power in and of ourselves. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit to resist the devil. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to stand firm in our faith. We have the power to not go out and seek to come to grips with who we are without the power of the Holy Spirit in us and making use of that power that He alone provides. Keep in mind, friends, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you do have power, but it's not your own. Don't ever think you can abuse that power that God has given you. So resist the devil. That means simply resist. Stand. And when he sees the armor of God upon the believer, he will not stay. It's simple. Jesus says, this demon found the place empty. The Spirit of God was not present in that man. And he uses that example again to indicate to the Pharisees and scribes that was their problem. So again, in verse 45, he says, Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. The last portion of this chapter leads us into the next chapter. Because he says, In verse 46, While Jesus was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven... He says in verse 49, he stretched out his hand hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It doesn't get any more plain than this. Jesus is saying, The Pharisees and the scribes were a wicked and adulterous generation. They rejected. They would not receive. But those who are the ones who are his family are those who do receive, those who do believe, those who do the will of the Father, Jesus says, are my brothers, my sister, my mother. That's all of us who have received Christ, part of the family. And that family relationship is better than blood relationship. 
Much, much better. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, Jesus' mother, Mary, you remember Mary? Blessed art thou among women? Well, yes, she is. And I don't want to lessen that fact. But she wasn't greater than. It says, blessed are you among women, not blessed are you above women. She's just a woman, as all of you women are, in need of salvation. She also had that same need. And she expressed that need by saying, The Lord is my salvation. And she was among those who were gathered together in the upper room, those 120 souls after the resurrection of Christ, where the Spirit of God came down and baptized all of them. And she was among those who received the Spirit. She needed salvation just like anybody else. So if you ever listen to anyone who tells you that Mary is a co-redemptress in heaven and that you can pray to Mary or that you can pray to Joseph or that you can pray to Peter or Paul or Stephen or any of the other saints, that is blasphemy. Know for a fact that there is only one who is your advocate and it is Jesus Christ. Mary is not an advocate. She is not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus in the flesh. And she was chosen by God for a very special reason. And that's why she's considered to be blessed among women. What a great blessing it was for her to carry in her womb the very Savior of the world. But that gave her no position of power. She's not to be exalted above any other human being. And when we get to heaven, at least those of us who have received Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we get to heaven, we will see her among the saints. I I would like to sit with Mary one of these days and ask her a lot of questions about what it was like to raise Jesus. Perhaps we'll have that opportunity. Don't pray to anyone else but the Father through the Son. That's how you get your prayers answered. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Notice that he says, brothers, there are some who say Jesus was the only son of Mary and that she had no other children. That's another lie that is presented by some. It is a lie because the Word of God tells us that he not only had brothers, he had sisters also. He names the brothers elsewhere. I won't go into that, but they did become part of the same blood family. They were his half-brothers. Joseph was their father. Mary was their mother. And so through Mary, they were brothers and sisters also. Now, there are some who would say, well, that doesn't mean brothers... It means cousins. No, 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 no. The Greek language has a word for cousins. Luke uses that word for cousins elsewhere in his gospel record and not referring to Mary and her children. So set aside all those errors if you believe those or if you've been taught those things and realize that the family of God is you and I. We are his brothers and sisters. Collectively, we are part of that family and we have been truly blessed with an inheritance that has been promised as joint heirs with Jesus Christ, as descendants through adoption of the Father in heaven. And that great blessing is ours if we have truly believed 
in Jesus Christ, received the salvation that He alone has offered and believed in Him for the saving of our souls. Here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. He who does the will of my Father. Well, chapter 13, and I'll end with hopefully a fairly short discussion of this particular parable that Jesus is about to give. Now, the word parable in the Greek is formed with two different root words, para and balo. Para means come alongside. Balo means to throw. So you put the two words together and they mean throwing something alongside another thing. And what the parable implies then is that he uses something in the natural realm that they are familiar with to describe something that is in the spiritual realm, something they can't relate to unless they have some object that they can kind of refer to. And that's what a parable does. It reveals something of a spiritual nature by using something from a physical event or idea that they are familiar with. Not everybody understands a parable, those that Jesus gives. And in chapter 13, there are going to be seven parables. They're known as the kingdom parables, by the way. He speaks of the kingdom of heaven. And he says in almost all of them, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he uses these parables to describe those things that he alone was familiar with, but wanted to convey to him some semblance of what it may look like. And so these parables are very, very valuable to anyone who would read them. But those who read them can only understand them if they have been revealed by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus is going to say that very thing. Read on with me in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, the first one, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Now he's talking about sowing seed, not sowing clothes. Sowing seed was a common farming activity. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. One of Jesus' most common phrases that you'll find in the Gospel records. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Now we both, all of us, have two ears. So all of us can say, well, yeah, I've got an ear to hear. But are you hearing Are you opening your ear to what is being spoken? That requires a change of heart. And that's what Jesus is about to share. In verse 10, he continues and says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them and said, Because it has been given to you, my disciples, 
to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the Pharisees and scribes, it has not been given. For whoever has, that's the Pharisees, or rather that's the disciples, to whoever, whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, that's the Pharisees, even what he has will be taken away from him. He thinks he's got everything he needs, but he has nothing. Therefore, verse 13 says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What Jesus is telling his disciples is there is a distinction between those who are willing to hear and those who will not hear because they choose not to hear. The parable is something that does indeed reveal mysteries of God. It reveals to those who are willing to hear it, but it conceals those same truths to those who are not willing to hear. So Jesus is saying, based on what Isaiah the Old Testament prophet said, this is to be expected. There are those who will not hear. There are those who will not see. There are those who close their eyes and stuff their ears deliberately to avoid hearing what they know to be God's truth. And yet, in spite of that, they reject it. So that's why this parable is so very important. He's going to break it down for us in a very important fashion. And I want us to all understand what Jesus is saying in this parable has been revealed to not only his disciples in that day, but any one of us here in this room whose eyes are open and whose ears are willing to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Verse 18, now he says, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. I'll explain it to you, he says. And he says, by the way, that in understanding this parable, he gives clues of how to understand all of the parables. He defines things for us. He says in verse 19, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. The seed that was sown fell on various types of soil. The wayside was a pathway it was hardened ground. The seed could not penetrate that hardened ground. And the birds could easily come and take the seed, and then the seed would not be able to be fruitful. The seed is the Word of God. The ground is the world. The sower is Jesus. The seed has been sown. Some of it falls on the wayside. It's not that it gets deliberately thrown there. 
But in that culture, farming was done in a very simplistic way. The farmer would grab his bag of seed and he would just simply walk through his field and toss the seed and wherever it landed, that was where it got set. Sometimes it would fall on the wayside, the path that he was on. Sometimes it would fall on rocky soil because there was lots of rocky places in that region. Some fell on places where thorns grew and that was common as well. Have you ever planted a vegetable garden? You plant just vegetables, right? What comes up? Weeds. I didn't plant those weeds. They're there in abundance. And you've got to spend a lot of time trying to get rid of those weeds, don't you? But when the soil is rich, when the soil is fertile, when the soil has been prepared, oh, what a difference it makes. What Jesus is saying is very, very important. Again, he says to them, hear the parable of the sower. Make sure you understand. Make sure you listen. Make sure you hear with open ears and see with open eyes. So he just described what takes place when it falls on the wayside. Verse 20 says, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution rises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. I want you to take notice. The birds represent Satan in that first part of the parable. Satan comes and takes away the seed. That's what the birds are doing in that parable. So the birds really represent the action of Satan. He doesn't want the seed to be able to be planted in a place that will result in fruit. Well, the second one is just as bad because the seed is sown on that soil which is very rocky. But yet, There's enough soil there for the seed to take root for a time. The seed actually produces a plant that begins to grow. But notice what he says. Because it has no root in itself, it endures only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. I submit to you that this is a reference to not Satan, but to your own flesh. When things begin to come against you as a new believer, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to cry out to God and ask for help, or you're going to say, oh, this isn't for me. And there are many who just simply say, I ain't going to do this. I ain't going to live this way. I'm not going to suffer persecution I'd rather have prosperity. I had it before I named Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'm not going to list Him as my Savior anymore because He's not helping me out in this situation. There are those who have gone down that path. They're like this particular part of the parable. They've chosen, because of the tribulation that comes against them, because of persecution, they aren't able because... There wasn't enough soil to take root solid 
believers need depth. And tribulation, persecution, develops that. But there are those who choose to go in the other direction when tribulation and persecution strike. He stumbles. It's like the seed's been planted, it begins to grow, and the sun beats down on it, and the plant immediately withers and dies. It bore no fruit. It wasn't a successful planting of the seed. It's not the fault of the one who sowed the seed. It's the fault of the soil. The type of soil. Your heart is represented in this. My heart is represented in this. Verse 22 says, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and cares of the world and the seedfulness of riches take and choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. The world impacts us. You know, we have three enemies and they're described here. Satan, the flesh, and the world. And if we are influenced by any one of those three, or all of those three, we will not succeed in our commitment to following Christ. Now, this is a warning to anyone, because these first three are not Christian. They fell away. They had opportunity, but they resisted. They would not, and they did not. They thought about it for a while, but it didn't work out for them. Or they just simply thought perhaps I just might just go along for the ride. I'll attend church. I'll give tithes. I'll make it look like I'm a believer. On the outside, nobody will know the difference. But on the inside, I don't really believe in Jesus. That's the third group. Thorns have kept that one from growing and not bearing any fruit. I guess we would call that individual an agnostic. An agnostic is no different than an atheist. Neither one will enter into the kingdom. Lastly, verse 23. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Remember, Jesus wants His church to bear fruit. And some of us are going to bear more fruit than others. I submit to you that the grandmother who is unable to come to church on Sundays or whenever the church meets, who spends much of her time praying for those who can, praying for those who perhaps are her neighbors, her friends that haven't yet accepted Christ, she's bearing fruit, much fruit. She may not be visibly seen, but she's fertile soil, and she's committed to doing what she can to make a difference in the world through prayer. There are others who are involved in leadership. Some are doing a good job. They will be rewarded accordingly. There are those in leadership, though, who may be sheep's clothing, but wolves. They're not going to receive any reward. Jesus knows who we are. He knows good soil 
from that soil which is rocky soil. He knows whether or not you have been among thorns. He knows if you are like the wayside, hardened path, unwilling, unresponsive. The Pharisees and scribes were unwilling and unresponsive. And the other seed that fell on those other types of soil are just other examples of those that you do not want to be partaking with. This passage, some have interpreted it as being, well, one quarter of the world is going to be on the wayside, one quarter of the world is going to be among the thorns, one quarter of the world is going to be uh, in thorny uh, or the rocky soil, and one quarter of the world is going to be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, many that be, that walk on that wide road, that few there be that walk on that narrow path. He said elsewhere, many are called, but few are chosen. So the relationship doesn't appear to be one quarter of mankind will be saved. It doesn't work that way. I don't know what the number is, but I do know that God has a number number in mind. Because the Word of God tells us very clearly that when the fullness of Gentiles is come in, then the end will come. So if there is a fullness of the Gentiles, that means that there are still Gentiles to be saved because the church is still here. People, church, we're here for the purpose of spreading that same seed. It's not our responsibility for the seed to be growing. It's our responsibility to spread the seed. But it's not our responsibility only to spread seed. Some do that and do it effectively. That's wonderful. There are some who sow seed. There are some who water. But God gives the increase. Let God do His job. It's just for us to do ours. And let us as a church of Jesus Christ be fully committed, friends. Jesus is planting. He's sowing seed through us. He's watering through us. But it is by His Spirit that fruit results. 